It's almost time, kids. The clock is ticking. The boogeyman is coming. He's gonna get you. 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 Welcome to the now-playing Halloween Retrospective Series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Due to the current release of Rob Zombie's new Halloween movie, H2, we will be watching and reviewing all of the films in the Halloween series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning, these conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Trick or treat, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Halloween 2, the 2009 Rob Zombie remake, I guess you would call it. Not really. It's a sequel, just a 2009 Rob Zombie sequel. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. Arnie in Haddonfield. (laughs) Still there. So this is generally a sequel. This is not a remake of Halloween 2 from 1981. This is actually a sequel to Rob Zombie's remake, retelling, re-imaging of Halloween from 2007. And that's an interesting distinction to make because although there are similarities here and there, especially in the beginning, it's really just a completely different movie than Halloween 2 from 1981. Yeah, Rob Zombie has said in many interviews that when he decided he was going to make a sequel, he was going to make it completely his own and not feel beholden to anything that's came before. So what little is similar, I believe, is more the product of coincidence than it is design. (laughs) Interesting. So I guess we should start at the top. The movie opens with a definition again. So the title card tells us what the symbolism of the white horse is. And I, I gotta ask, because you watch this movie and there's a white horse in it from time to time. And it, it's such a non sequitur. Do you think that test audiences all wrote on their little feedback card, what the fuck's with this white horse? And Rob <laughs> Zombie saw it so many times. He's like, you idiots. And just put it right there so that people stopped asking. Made it the first thing in this movie. It's a symbol. It means rage unleashed. Got it? (laughs) You know what it made me think of? It started me on the track that I couldn't get off of. Uh, (laughs) The White Horse first appeared in a movie called Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which was sort of a movie prequel to the Supernatural David Lynch series. And I was like, huh, he's making a reference to a mysterious ghostly white horse that appears in a vision to a girl that's doomed and the parallels to that movie and this movie become greater and greater as we move along so right off the bat it had me thinking that the big influence here was not going to be tarantino and carpenter but david lynch you know having seen a lot of david lynch's work and i actually like david lynch to a point i'm i know you're a big lynch fan Stuart, and i'm a reserved lynch fan i'll give him the benefit of the doubt but i've still seen dune but <laughs> the thing that zombie was able to do that lynch doesn't do is tell a coherent story <laughs> lynch oftentimes gets off on so much symbolism and i think the best example of this is a movie i really like lost highway great movie and the more stoned you are the better it gets but at the end of the day i couldn't tell you what it was about at least halloween 2 i know what it's about well it's halloween 2 is a pretty straightforward story wouldn't you agree i mean there's tell you what it's about it's about a murderer right it's really simple to talk about what the plot of this movie is so to correlate it to that seems a little weird to me so i'm not really understanding your point. Well, with Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, it should also be a fairly straightforward tale of a murderer, and it's think. anything but. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I definitely argue th- or agree with your argument that Lynch is much more about moment-to-moment weirdness and the story be damned, and oftentimes they don't really have a logical coherence, whereas Zombie, uh, I guess, is trying to tell a story here. I, I would like to put to you whose story you think it is, 
because yeah. I was a little confused about that. I thought that he was going to, with this chapter, be answering all the things that were untold about Michael Myers. But really, I think this is supposed to be Laurie's story. It was a little confusing to me, but I feel like it changed protagonists and it was not, well, I don't know. Well, you say that it was going to answer what questions people had about Michael. After the first one, were there any questions left about Michael? We got to see, you know, him as a kid. We got to see his genesis as a murderer. We got to see him in therapy. I didn't think there was much left to reveal about Michael. I think that for the sequel, yeah, he definitely shifted to Laurie because there was nothing left to explore with Michael. And to try and make it a Michael movie would have put it in the realm of resurrection in in terms of what le- there was left to say. And yet here we are looking at a white horse with an introductory scene in which we flash back to the institution and the uh, stripper mom is telling young Michael, who's clearly had a growth spurt and does not look like he did uh, a few years ago. Actually, that's a different actor. Obviously. Yeah, different actor. The it's a different. I don't. Are you sure? Positive. Yes. They replaced the kid because uh, the real kid did have too big of a growth spurt. So uh, they got a new kid. Yep. Interesting. Well, that you know what? I didn't notice that, but I did notice that he didn't look the same. That's because he's a new person. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Very confusing. Oh, well, my whole point of bringing about that, I'm not trying to nitpick here. I'm just saying that they are clearly trying to set up right from the get-go with White Horse that there is still something to explain about Michael's rage and that at its core, it has something to do with a mother complex. Yeah. They try to set up this whole thing with this dream and seeing his mom constantly throughout the movie as kind of like this motif and I guess that's supposed to explain to me the moviegoer why he's doing this still after the events of the first movie and maybe trying to get me to care about what's going on with him because I have to agree with really had trouble figuring out or who this movie was about and why this movie is being made if I do agree that we explored Michael to a whole different level in the last one and for better or for worse and it, it most some of it worked some of it didn't but here I think the white horse thing to me came off like a crutch that the movie needed to have that for some reason to explain why Michael is in this movie. I, I didn't understand why this this sequel is here. Sometimes for you know we've watched a lot of sequels in these retrospective series, and there isn't always a, re- a reason for these sequels. But the first. Halloween movie by Rob Zombie, I saw the point of it. I saw what he was trying to do there. I did not get what he was trying to do here. And the white horse thing just confused me in addition to other things. So I, I got a thought. I'd like to spill my beans right now, if I may. Uh, please stand back. Um, <laughs> I got my boots on. <laughs> I have a theory that what we are watching is a very compromised movie. Actually, that's not a theory. That was overtly stated. I, I should back up and say I had the uh, the fortunate opportunity to actually see the world premiere of this movie. I live in L.A., as I say at, at the beginning of every podcast, and one of the perks is you can definitely weasel your way into a red carpet screening every now and then. And I got to see Grauman's Chinese Theater premiere with Rob Zombie and all the stars of it before the movie opened. Zombie got up there, and he did not look happy about how it turned out. He was thanking the cast profusely. He was not thanking the Weinsteins or the Akkads or acknowledging mm. that they existed. He talked continuously, enigmatically about what a pain in the ass it was to make this movie and that he felt like it was under impossible conditions and that even though he used the word that it, he had kick-ass results, I didn't get the sense that he had gotten to make the movie that he wanted to make. And I say all of this because I have a theory that the movie he really wanted to make was in which we find out at the twist ending that Lori is the killer of all of these killings and that Michael is a figment of her imagination and is really dead. Wow, that would have been a twist. I think that's what he wanted to make and I can cite scenes and ideas where that is referenced. But of course... He is actually a real character in here, and they have lots of needless scenes of him wandering bearded through the countryside, killing yokels, ambulance drivers, (laughs) strippers, whatever's around. Yeah, whatever's around. But my sense is that if Zombie had had his way, my, my gut instinct was, is that we think Michael is killing all of these people around Lori, but in fact... 
Lori is demonstrating the evil gene that is a part of her root, which, you know, at the root, she's a Myers. She's not a Strode. So I think that was what they were after here. And I don't know who put the kibosh on it. I could even be totally wrong, but that is my impression. And I feel like it got compromised coming to the screen, probably because the Akkads are so partial to making Michael always the central force of the Halloween series. So you're basically saying they would have Friday the 13th part five us. I think so. But wouldn't that have been a bitter twist than the end of Friday the 13th Part 5, Arnie, to be fair? I mean, that would have been a kind of uh, interesting way to go about it. They did have the dreams throughout the movie. They had Lori have the dream of what happened after the night we saw in the first movie. They had Michael's dreams. She had a couple of dreams, actually, in this movie. Throughout there the are movie. a lot of dreams in this yeah. movie. So, there so, are too many dreams <laughs> in this movie. And so I would I think, argue that most, so, of the, uh, most of the exciting, good stuff that is here, and there's not a lot of it, but it's all fooled you dream fakeouts that don't really happen. And that's because a large part of this is happening in Laurie's fevered, damaged, turning crazy mind. I like this theory, Stuart. And I, the end of the movie, that last shot of the movie certainly indicates that, you know, she will be the, the force that they, they wanted, what, the young daughter in the fourth movie to have. Remember the fourth movie ended that kind of way? Mm-hmm. I, I got to say that I have to agree that the dreams were all over the place a lot. And I thought the first dream was really good, though. They started the movie off like the original second Halloween with the hospital. And he goes to the hospital and she has to escape and then she wakes up i thought that was a brilliant way to get the movie moving is that she was recalling that night again but the part we didn't see i thought that was very clever i thought that was the one time really when the dream was a good device i can honestly say sitting in the packed grauman chinese theater house when we followed Lori as she's being totally stalked and there's some good stuff in this thing there's a particularly memorable a moment where she's talking to a nurse who steps out the nurse comes back with a gash on her head falls over and michael totally tears her up toe up to the floor up and i mean that (laughs) really gross some really good sound effects foley artist work on that as he just rips her to pieces proceeds to follow her down the stairs out in the rain to a parking garage attendant almost gets her i mean this is going on for so long and there was a collective groan when we found out that all of the past 10 15 minutes we had been watching was totally not happening i completely agree with that groan because i was watching this movie and you know i'm watching it and i'm like i know from the trailers and things the whole thing's not the hospital story it's not halloween 2 the remake so in these hospital scenes i'm like okay so we've got kind of like a karate kid 2 kind of thing going on where the very beginning of the movie is the end of the last movie continued and then we're gonna fast forward and see what happens later so the fact that it was a dream just so pissed me off because I'm sitting there and I'm like, I know Lori lives. How's she getting out of that little house? Michael's right there. She's got a cast. How's she getting out? And even when it was all said and done, part of me was like, so was it a dream or was it a memory? And it turns out it was all a fucking dream. But I kind of hoped that it was like, maybe that was the transition. That was all real and people were still hunting for Michael. And no, it was all a dream. And that really, I, I, I felt so bamboozled because honestly, that was the best part of the movie for me. It went downhill after that. It was a very strong scene and I really liked it a lot. And I too did not know for about 15 minutes after watching that, did that happen? Did that really happen? But I thought to jump ahead to get out of that, yeah, it would have been kind of cool to see her escape. Yes, completely. And maybe they maybe they wrote themselves into a hole and they couldn't figure out how to progress the movie from there. But I thought it was a, an effective way to get the movie to move on. One Mm. more thing before we stop talking about this. During the entire hospital sequence, there was this TV set that had this one band playing. Everyone's watching the Oh, can I just say that is the best fucking use of Knights in White Satin ever, though? I mean, admittedly, it went on long. I'm like, they're still playing the song on TV. Yeah. But it was great. That scene to the music of Knights in White Satin. I had Knights in White Satin in my head for days after it. I loved that musical choice. They're watching a black and white version of it on a TV. Everyone's watching the same thing. 
thing. I'm not questioning the choice of song in the movie as much as I'm questioning why I was there for so long. Why am I constantly seeing it on TV? And why is everyone watching the same program? It didn't make any sense. It was like the I, only channel on. That's a very famous recording of that song. It was even used in like a Freedom Rock ad or something. That actual close-up of the guy's head. So when it's first on TV, I thought they were watching a Freedom Rock ad. And then the song went on further <laughs> than the ad. I don't know why Zombie just didn't overlay that song onto what we were watching. Yes. Why they would be watching. I mean, that's not even 70s. Moody Blues is the 60s. Why they would be watching in what is occurring. I think the time frame here is what, 98? Something like that. I think we've established that. I thought it was even the 2000s. No, because if we were going to go back through the timeline, the title card in the first movie said that Michael was a boy in 81, I think. And then we flash ahead 15 years. So it's like 96, 97. Okay. And no one had uh, a cell phone, right? Nobody's got a cell phone and nobody dresses or listens to anything from that era. They're living in Rob Zombie's 70s retro land. And I know the 70s were big in the 90s, but still. Yeah, you're right. It's a, it's a very funny joke. It makes that song have a new dimension to it. But I don't understand why we have to keep cutting to the TV clip of it. <laughs> that entire sequence was very well done. Can I tell you, if the entire movie had just been that, I think I would have been happy. I mean, honestly, if it had just said, we've already had our introduction to these characters. And it became a 90-minute grueling action chase, you know, mm. out of there. I think I could have gone with it. I mean, that would actually just be, if you could sustain the level of adrenaline that that scene had. And of course, there would be some lulls and some moments. But to make it kind of like, you know, to pull some random movies off the shelf that are action from beginning to end that I love, like a 28 days later type of vibe out of it or something. You're talking the Terminator, though. Yeah, pretty much. That kind of story. And just and to do that kind of level of story with this, I would have so gone with it. And when it fast forwarded, I felt a bit cheated because, yeah, it was all a dream. And the movie never reaches that high again. And in fact, it mines the depth so low that I was so fucking disappointed. It is a letdown. I, I've got to say, I, I think in the last podcast, I had rechanged my opinion of the Halloween remake because when I first saw it, I thought, ah, this is unnecessary. But the second time watching it again for you guys, I realized there's a lot of merit here and Zombie appears to have a vision. You can't deny that the guy doesn't have a vision. And I saw this movie and I thought, where's the vision? Exactly. And that's why I started theorizing that perhaps the vision that he wanted didn't end up on screen. I mean, he says that overtly to the audience <laughs> before he even unspooled the movie was that it was a hell of a film to make and he didn't exactly make the movie he wanted to. I have to believe that, you know, there was something else. And maybe my theory is wrong about Laurie being the real killer. But how hard would it have been to end that sequence instead of her waking up from a dream and totally negating everything that we've seen to having Michael just suddenly disappear? And, you know, you've set it up for the fact that Lori somehow mysteriously lives and we don't know why. And at the end of the movie, we find out that's because she was the one that actually killed the parking attendant and she was the one that actually killed the nurse. Well, you know what? Even if Lori was the killer, if the movie was delivered the way it was, I wouldn't have liked because honestly, there is just too much of a lull. And here was my thinking. We've got this whole movie where now we're fast forwarding to the future. Lori is living with Sheriff Brackett and Annie Brackett working at a record store and is that what that is can i just interrupt with you what i had no idea why howard hessman was in this movie <laughs> and what kind of store that was they did not have any records there i thought it was like a head shop bookstore i thought it was a bookstore <laughs> so we're all making it up <laughs> we all see what we want to see yeah all i know is Lori is suddenly all of a sudden very into alice cooper and kiss She's she has posters of them around. You know, they reflect, I guess, her damaged psyche a year later, having recovered from these wounds. Is their damaged psyche the fact that her musical tastes are stuck in the 70s? <laughs> the yes. whole movie's musical taste is stuck in the 70s. I just want to establish that we have no idea what Lori is doing. 
She's living with the sheriff who sold her away as a baby to the Strodes, and she's unaware of her past history, and she's working in some kind of psychedelic shot with Howard Hessman. I still thought it was a record thing, and I thought it was a callback to how Hessman used to be a DJ in WKRP. I think. But there are no records! Yeah, there's <laughs> you, no music. There's not one record. I mean, Arnie, you and I, being from Springfield, you remember Penny Lane. Remember, I was there last week. <laughs> it's a bong shop. I think that's what they <laughs> wanted to imply. That, And, you know, there's definitely a psychedelic quality to all these dreams and, and what have you. I think we're meant to imply that she's hanging out with potheads. Like, her, her friends are definitely not uh, good girls. There's this Harley and uh, Maya... And they're all just kind of hanging out. And while they never – do they ever toke up? No. They drink, no, though. They drink. It's very weird. I don't know. And also, in addition to her hanging out with bad kids, you know, she was still mostly the good girl last time. But I noticed now she's got a tramp stamp and two hand tattoos. So she'll never find a real job. Because she's got, like, the pentagrams in the webs of both of her thumbs. Well, she. this is the Rob Zombie's way of demonstrating what the impact of last year's Halloween attack had on her and she's seeing a therapist played in a hilarious cameo by yes. margot kidder margot kidder again what is she doing there unless he, rob zombie just wanted the irony of a crazy woman being a therapist i think you've <laughs> nailed it <laughs> that's my one and only guess about that but uh i mean i was i was i was this is my reaction to that scene it looks like Margot Kidder. Oh my God, that's Margot Kidder. Margot Kidder's <laughs> playing a therapist? She's not doing that bad. Oh, wait, she's doing bad. Oh, God. <laughs> that, was my, that was me watching that scene. <laughs> There's a lot of weird cameos in this one. I, mean, I love the just... cameos in this movie. There's not a lot, I gotta say, unfortunately. And I really felt the difference between the movie filmed in Pasadena and the movie filmed in Georgia because there were so many non-cameos in this. Yes, there was Howard Hessman, there was Margot Kidder, and there was Weird Al. But Weird Name another one. If you're a fan of Deadwood, and I love that TV show, there are two characters from Deadwood in it. One is the ambulance driver who hits the cow and gets <laughs> his throat slashed in the beginning. And the other one is the guy in the field in that very awkward scene in which he tells Michael, I told you never to come to my field again, even though Michael has never been to that field. And he and his girlfriend and his truck driver friend all get killed. I've never seen Deadwood, so I didn't know that. I did find the cow scene to be funny. I was still going with the movie at that point, of course. And when he goes, cow, cow, I, I got a good laugh. Although living in Illinois, it was far more likely to be a deer than a cow. I've only seen yes. one cow loose on the streets, but I've seen thousands of deer. And with the uh, second one, I got the impression that Michael was going there and eating cattle raw and that he had gone there again and again. Oh, but he's wandering. My sense is that he's not wandering in a circle, that he's, well, where I, is he? I kind of thought well, he made camp. <laughs> you know, he wandered into that barn where he was led by the ghost of his mother and the white horse. And I yes. kind of thought he just stayed there for a while eating this guy's cows and dogs. My impression of Michael in this movie was that for some reason it took him a long time to get from where he was in the first movie back to kill her or try to kill Lori again on Halloween. The, the complaint of Michael driving was non-existent because he was walking this time. That's the yeah. impression I got. I didn't get an impression that he camped anywhere. We didn't see him have a camp. Well, he carried a freaking sleeping bag everywhere he went. He would maybe camping, but he didn't <laughs> squat anywhere. He didn't like, he didn't have like, in Halloween, the one with Busta Rhymes, he had that little alcove with the rat on the plate and the, and the cot. We didn't see any of that kind of stuff this time. He just was the vagabond. He was just wandering. Uh, is he that sentimental that he can only attack Lori on Halloween? Like, is he just wandering around waiting for the seasons to change so that he can do his thing? I got the impression that he was trying to find his way back. I got the impression that he was waiting for the ghost to say, go do it. And maybe the ghost was waiting for Halloween. Well, there you go. But it makes no so. sense that it would be the ghost of his mother telling him to kill because everything we saw in the first movie wasn't that. Of course, not to say it was a real ghost. It could have been his imaginings of, you know, the devil on his shoulder saying, go kill. 
real. But then if it's not a real ghost, how could Lori see it at the end? And my head hurts. I think Arnie made a gigantic point. The mother in the first movie was supportive of Michael not being crazy, right? So, <laughs> so Let's I mean, extremely. We, we, right. So the fact that she is the one telling him with this horse and his childlike version of himself, that didn't correlate for me. The white horse thing is a gimmick, as I mentioned earlier in my mind. The end of the movie with Laurie in the shack with Michael, when she's being restrained and seeing the exact same vision that Michael is seeing can either mean one of two things. One, that she is carrying the Michael Myers family gene of crazy. Or two, that it was more effective visually for the audience and and logic be damned. I don't understand how she can have the same dreams as he does without having any basis for that dream. If the white horse is in this dream and the mother is in this dream, those are two things that we set up in the beginning of the movie that Michael was given the white horse by his mother in the hospital. How did those images even get into Laurie's brain? Because they're not even in Loomis's new book when she read the book either so how is it possible that that manifestation of the dream was holding her back i don't have a problem with the mental problems chaining her there in theory but it maybe if they set up something different to be what that mental chain was for her to be the mother or the kid didn't make any sense here's what i think they were going for you know they had set up much like they did in part five that laurie had a psychic connection to michael Michael's right. eating a dog. Lori's throwing up. It's very E.T. So. So I wish I could work in reverse. Like my, Michael's eating the dog and it tastes like pineapple pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, you could go. There's a psychic link. So she sees what he sees. You could go. It's a mass psychosis shared among people. You could go. It's a real ghost. And in the end, it's all of those and none of those. It's, you know, like pretentious art house films. You know, it's yeah. whatever you want it to be. You, only or just David Lynch <laughs> or David Lynch. Which again, I like I said, pretentious art house, art house film. I think not only is when he's eating dogs, she's tasting it. I think when he's killing someone, she's killing someone. And I think that what's supposed to be happening at the at the end of it is that they're coming together in one family reunion of crazy. I get that, but in the movie we have where she's not the killer. <laughs> in the movie we have, there's just the psychic link and it's it you know, if you are right with your guess, then perhaps this whole clusterfuck of a movie would have made some more sense. Yep. It certainly would have explained why her friends get killed at the outdoor party where they're dressed up like Rocky Horror Picture Show characters. Yeah, that made no fucking sense. I honestly thought we were in for a Freddy versus Jason type party slaughter and instead he kills two random people why does he even kill them who knows why would he go there yeah. yes they are they have no relation to him my guess is that rob zombie didn't have the balls yes he's gonna come and kick my ass now i know rob zombie didn't have the balls to do what this movie needed which is to pace it just like the original 1978 halloween and to let us have 60 minutes of movie with just suspense and no kills because it's like every 15 minutes like clockwork well i've got to work in some random slaughter now I've got to kill some hillbillies. I've got to kill some strippers. I've got to kill some people at a party. Why? Well, because of the gore hounds. Not just that, Arnie. Zombie is not good at suspense. And I want to stress that. At no point in any of his movies has he made something that is scary because it is paced to be scary. He makes gratuitous, violent, unsettling imagery. But he does not know how to scare people through tension. And that was the point that Stuart and I were trying to talk about last podcast, I believe. And that's a good point to make. Although there is a great scene in this movie where I believe it was Danielle Harris's kill, where you just hear the scream. You yes. don't see it. And I was like, finally! Finally. Yes. And I agree. And unfortunately, though, unfortunately, though, I think he had her screaming too long into the next bleeding into the next part as he's wont to do. As I always complain about on these podcasts is that he always goes too far. He doesn't know when to, how many more shots the dog being eaten, how many more times we have to see uh, the guy who's who hit the cow die. Nitpick uh, much? The scream is too long? God, you're like the MPAA. The point is, the point is not the MPAA. The point is that the subtlety that he was making with just the scream, the suspense or tension or whatever he was doing differently there that I've been begging him to do in my mind, he did – 
but I thought he, again, went too far with it instead of just leaving well enough alone. Remember I talked about last time with the door and how he lingered at the door. I thought that'd be a brilliant opportunity to not show us that kill yet, but show us the, the bodies later or have her come across the body later. And he instead went inside and he went too far with it. Again, I think he went too far there. I'm nitpicking a little bit, but I think the point is valid. He finally I did th- something I, like that. Run. I agree, Brock. I loved that death. I thought it was the most affecting one in the whole movie. And I also think Annie is the most likable character. Daniel Harris is the best <laughs> actress in this movie. And it's you really lose something when she's taken out of the picture. I really liked her. I've always liked her. Even in those horrible Halloween 4 and 5 pictures, I've always liked Daniel Harris. Her death here is striking. I can't say that I've always liked Daniel Harris, but I have to say that, you know, I like her now as an actress. I agree with you that she's the best actress in this film. Sorry, Marco. And... When she died, I felt so gypped because she worked so hard to survive the last film. You know, her character was put through the ringer and she never leaves the goddamn house in this movie. She is so underutilized. It makes her survival in the last movie pointless. And I felt ripped off by that. Yeah, it's, you know, where I'll slightly disagree with you, Brock, is that you thought the screen went on too long and that's what made it gratuitous. For me, it was the flashing back. Later, he couldn't just leave it with the sound. We have to have when Lori returns to the house with her friend Maya, they're wandering around and then they intercut that with the actual murder flashbacks. And I thought, okay, there you go. You can't you can't just let it be implied. You have to be gratuitous. And that's just zombie at heart. He just he has to show you the veins separating as the blood spurts out. You know, he can't just imply gross. And and right. Anyone that knows anything about suspense knows that withholding information is a big part of that. And allowing your own mind to create the images is a part of that. And Zombie just – he doesn't have that skill. Yeah. And I will disagree with you, Stuart, in that I think the best kill was that nurse you mentioned earlier with the arm just going as high up as it can and going down as hard as it can on the nurse. That was, I thought, just a tremendously brutal and wonderful kill. It's the second best one. I'm not going to disagree with you. It's a it's a, a very evocative, great, gory, shocking kill. But I think partly because of how I feel about Annie – uh, this is the death that really impacts us. The only one. I also want to say, though, that Nurse Kill, what was great about why I think it was such a great kill in the be- is, is the beginning of the movie, that it really was a, a startling thing to see so early, that the violence that he was stabbing her with, the anger, it was at that point in the movie, so early in the movie, a very... Uh, it got the right it got the juices flowing i thought it was an appropriate time for that sort of thing if that makes any too sense too bad it I, didn't really happen <laughs> <laughs> but yet despite despite the fact it didn't really happen he kills the hillbillies with the exact same nice flash he does the exact same thing at the strip club he does the same all the way up all the way down stabs so i'd like to mention one kill in particular that i found extremely interesting the bouncer in the parking lot of the strip club, he wasn't wearing the mask when he killed him. And every other time in every other movie, Michael Myers kills when he has the mask on. Am I right? This is the first time ever that we saw Michael Myers kill somebody without wearing the mask or a mask. I'm I'm pretty sure he wasn't wearing the mask with the hillbillies a little earlier. I thought he put the mask on before he killed them. Yeah. He pulled, he pulled it out he of his did. jacket, put the oh, mask on, yeah. and then turned around and killed him. He actually yeah. pulled it out of his coat or his bag or something, all right? And you saw him put it on, turn around, it's time to work, you know? <laughs> it's time to make the donuts. And he and he just went to town on them. Um, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. And I, I was Okay, you, you may be very well right. Yeah, it was really kind of interesting to me that they did that because yes, I always for such a for such a nothing character. I mean, there's there's somebody that I never thought about again. Well, no, I want to go farther with that. In the first movie, in the first Rob Zombie Halloween movie, how much time do we spend about masks and yeah. him making masks and having to wear the masks and then him to kill anybody without wearing a mask? I was thought that was a very interesting choice i'm not sure i agree with actually i know i don't agree with that choice but i I thought it was interesting he made it yeah interesting is one word i would say unsatisfying is another but then again that whole return to the scene of the strip club so i can kill everyone that employed my mother uh didn't really (laughs) work for me anyway (laughs) no it again by this point in the movie by the time we're at the strip club a i'm bored Mm. b 
I'm finding all of these random kills to be completely unsatisfying because I don't like it if we're introduced to a character in the scene of their death. I just don't like that. I like to enjoy a character and then feel bad when they're dead. What we got here was the horror movie equivalent of porn where two people walk into a room and fuck. Here, two people walk into a room, one walk out. You know, it, it's not satisfying to me as somebody who actually, despite my love for horror, I, I love a good story and I didn't feel this was giving me one at this point. And when he's killing the stripper, I, I was so out of this movie at that point. I agree. It was killing just to kill. They've set up things just to be knocked over. They don't feel like people. They don't feel like characters being killed. They feel like props spurting blood. Yeah, I have never come out of a horror movie and gone, I love this horror movie because 36 people died. You know, that's <laughs> not what makes a good horror movie is how high of a body count you can have. It's, you know, I, I would much rather see a movie like the original Nightmare on Elm Street where three people die, but you like them versus one where 36 people die that you've never seen. If I can right. ask you a question, Arnie, though, quickly, haven't you complained in the past that we haven't gotten to the kills fast enough? Yes, I have. But I want kills of people who are characters. I don't want to watch basically the m movie equivalent of there was a DVD release called Boogeyman where it was nothing but kill scenes from horror films. Mm. Uh, th I don't want that. It, it gets to be pointless. I don't want random deaths. I want deaths that mean something to the plot. These meant nothing to the plot. And yet Brock does bring up an interesting point, Arnie, which is that you do have very little patience for establishing scenes. Just because I don't like the first Halloween and Halloween H2O's <laughs> long setups does not mean I have no patience for establishing scenes. I just want something to happen. I want something to happen more than I spilled butter on my shirt and I'm giving a lesson plan. There's a middle <laughs> ground and you guys are not allowing me to enjoy that middle ground thinking I'm an extremist. No, there's a middle ground there. Uh, perhaps, but it I, is... Yeah, uh, I'm not going to belabor you, this point. You are the three probably had the least patience for slow pace when it comes to horror. And yet this movie did not excite me because I don't consider it fast paced. Just because there were random kills did not pick up the pace. It took so long to get to the showdown at the end. And let, let's veer to a slightly different topic. My God, I said Annie survived the last movie so she could not leave the house. Malcolm McDowell also survived the last movie for no reason. In the director's cut, we got to see that Malcolm McDowell lived, which wasn't in the theatrical cut. And he comes back to do nothing. Thing. No, not to do nothing, to ruin the good vibes that he created in the first movie, because <laughs> yes. they have changed the character entirely. This is the biggest disappointment of Halloween 2. Of all the things that I didn't like about it, and it's a lot, this is the thing that just really stuck me. Just really just right there like a, like a hacksaw in the face. I'm just like, I can't believe you took this quirky, funny, weirdo character and turned him into a money grubbing, hateful, people-trampling asshole who's clearly set up to die. I just, I thought it was a terrible role for Malcolm McDowell to play beneath him. And I wouldn't have thought that Zombie would have allowed this to be where uh, Loomis went. I completely agree. You know, even though if you don't agree, Stuart, but you know that Loomis has long been one of my favorite characters and the personification of Loomis by Malcolm McDowell in the first movie is one of the things that I love about that first movie so much. And it's one of the things that when they were making the sequel, I was on the edge of my seat. Is Malcolm McDowell coming back? Because I didn't know if I'd be on board for the sequel without Malcolm McDowell. And they said, Malcolm McDowell's coming back. I'm like, yes, good. I'm there. You have me. And then what they did with him was so disappointing that I honestly wish he hadn't come back. I would have just been better because there's these long, arduous scenes of him arguing with his book publicist <laughs> where the book publicist is saying, you're going too far. I, I know a lot of publicists. <laughs> no publicist says that. No! You're publishing serial killer stuff. No publicist is going to say, think of the victim's families. It's a very bizarre conflict to even create in which the author is the one pushing the book editor to exploit the situation. And there's all of these scenes, and it was about, again, midway through the movie that I realized this is all we're getting. He's not going to ever ride into the rescue. He's He is just here to have a completely 
secondary substory where the only relation it has to the main story is that in the book, he reveals that Laurie Strode is really Angel Myers, Michael Myers' sister, which then sets off Laurie in the middle of the movie and she has a bit of a breakdown. That's all the book accomplishes. And for that one plot point, which the sheriff could have let slip, which, you know, somebody- A new character. There could be a new novelist, you know, writing about it. I mean, you're right. It didn't have to be Loomis. How about taking Loomis out of it and have it be a reporter covering the fact that Angel Myers shot her brother? You know, it didn't have to be Loomis. And the Loomis character, we said it before, is the Van Helsing. And to do what they did to Loomis in this movie was beyond disappointing. Yeah, you know you're in trouble when his best moment is him telling his book editor, if I want your opinion, I'll beat it out of you. I mean, that's (laughs) the best. That's the best scene. It's the only part I laughed at. And I didn't feel good about laughing about it. That's a line I've used on a woman once and it didn't work very well. (laughs) No? No. Arnie, remember in the Devil's Rejects when they had the film critic come in and they had the whole scene about the film critic and it was kind of like... Oh, how can I forget it? I wish I could forget it. And it was kind of like a commentary Rob Zombie was making about film critics. Yes. When, When the book publisher was questioning Malcolm McDowell's taste and what's good taste and bad taste and then Malcolm McDowell's reactions to that. Do you think that was the same kind of situation with Rob Zombie talking about people questioning taste? You know, I read one critic's review where they took the one line Malcolm McDowell said of bad taste is what funds the American dream or something along those lines. And, you know, if you want to read that into it, you can. If so, at least it's not as garish as the movie critic in Devil's Rejects. But in the end, it it, it went on way too long if that's the one point. You know, it just kept going and kept going and kept going. And really, if Michael had hunted him, I would have been with it. If he had gone and if he had found out Michael was free and then, you know, had a change of heart and a crisis of conscience, which he kind of does at the very end. No, he does. You're saying he has no point. The point is that they've set him up to be this jerk so that he can have a redemption. He will die for no reason. For no no reason. He goes running into the cabin at the end (laughs) in a five-minute character redemption and dies purposelessly. Well, he saves Lori to come out. No, he uh, doesn't. He doesn't. Michael (laughs) kills him and Lori is still a captive. Wait, wait, Arnie. Arnie, he does save him indirectly because because by killing Loomis in the cabin, the sniper is able to take Michael down. Yeah, that's pretty lame, Brack, though. You gotta admit. I'm not not saying it's I'm not saying it's awesome. I'm not saying it's the world's greatest reason to have Loomis in the cabin. I'm just saying to you, it put him in front of the window and that's when the sniper killed him. The sniper's bitching because he had a shot before Loomis went up. <laughs> so, you know, if Loomis hadn't gone there, the sniper would have shot earlier. I mean, it, it it seems like a completely pointless death, and it's far too abrupt. He he goes riding at the last minute. Nobody wants him there for obvious reasons, and beyond that, he accomplishes nothing. Yeah, it's I it's a horrible, horrible treatment of Malcolm McDowell in this movie. It's the worst thing about a bad movie. It's indefensible. I don't I can't see why they did it. And if, as long as I'm railing on this movie a little bit. Can I also rail on the director of photography? And I'm never one to single out a technical person's role. But my God, this movie had more extreme close-ups than a segment of Wayne's World. It felt like, (laughs) I felt claustrophobic in this movie because all I could see are characters from their cheeks. I couldn't even see foreheads and chins. I couldn't see their settings. Maybe it was, again, budget. Maybe they had no freaking sets. But I felt so claustrophobic in this movie. Yeah, it's poorly shot. I thought that the last movie really had this evocative retro look and garish and, and 70s and and it really looked like a Rob Zombie movie and this movie just looked cheap undeveloped just uninspired well actually the first we all agree that that first dream sequence with the hospital was very well shot great setups uh, her coming down the stairs, the rain, all of that. There's one great helicopter shot of hillbilly Michael Myers walking through the field. It swoops down near him and goes away from him. So in a beautiful, I think it was wheat or something in the field. I thought it was really gorgeous. But overall, I agree with Arnie. There, there were signs of brilliance here and there, but overall, it was missing from the movie in general. The best shot, as far as just a visual look, scenes in the movie are ones that shouldn't be here. And that's there's these very elaborate Baroque dream scenes sequences in which Laurie imagines herself in a glass casket uh, shaking and there's these pumpkins 
eating her and sitting around a table. It's it's one of those things. It's one of my pet peeves. I know I've said it in some podcasts before. If I haven't, I'm going to say it now and I'm going to say it again and forever. When you come up with bullshit like this, it pisses me off. When you're going to just invent, we need some scary images. Let's have a pumpkin drinking blood from a goblet with a girl in a casket. What's that got to do with anything? Nothing. I mean, I hate that. You have wasted my time with stupid imagery that might look cool if you were making a music video, but make it for a music video. Do not put it in a narrative story because it has no place and it will piss me off and turn me against your movie. Here's what I find absolutely amusing. You have, you've caused a revelation for me is because I hated that in this movie, but yet I loved almost the exact same thing when he did it in House of a Thousand Corpses. And House of a Thousand Corpses to me felt like a music video from beginning to end. And part of that was because of this random scary for scary sake imagery. And I think the differences with this movie and that movie is here it felt more out of place because that movie, again, it felt like a music video from the opening credit sequence. This, it felt like a conventional movie. And when you see it, it's so much more out of place. And yeah, it it, it was just bullshit. And I was just... Just yawning and yeah some of it was kind of cool and i saw it in some of the trailers and i was really excited to find out what the hell i was seeing and i still don't know yes it's it's a it's the ultimate letdown when you give us something that looks so tantalizing for three seconds and put it in a movie and finding out that it, it really has no place to be there other than to tantalize you to want to go see the movie that isn't any good and where and is the series going you know, we're, 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 we talked about the cabin and, uh, Lori finally does emerge. She's, she has a moment of reconciliation with Michael for some goddamn reason and emerges to laughter. I would like to point out the Grauman Chinese theater had, uh, laughter and embarrassed titters when she emerges from the cabin wearing Michael's white mask. And no one quite understood what that meant, but it's followed up with a scene in which she's in a room that looks like a award a padded cell if you will and sherry moon and her white horse come prancing down the hallway and uh laurie is leering and suddenly i thought okay there's no way this series can sustain the idea that laurie is going to be the new michael myers that's obviously what Rob Zombie was going for. And I must say, in that last shot where the actress who played Lori has her hair around her face and does that half smile, my God, it was like she was channeling the Michael from the first movie, the kid Michael. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a tremendous shot. They looked so damn similar. But yeah, they won't go there. The Akkads still own it. Yes, true, true. And they and were at the theater. They were the they were the ones la- applauding the loudest. In fact, they might have been the only ones applauding when the credits rolled. Now they didn't play the Halloween theme music until the end credits, and of, and then also they played a new or a, it's a version I hadn't heard before of Love Hurts uh, again. Uh, did you guys notice the movie, the Halloween movie music that's so classic was not in this movie at all until then? Because I did notice that. It. It, no, I noticed it and I wondered why they were savoring it. And I, I maybe early on thought it was because, you know, Zombie was trying to create his own thing. And then I just realized that it was a way to give a sense of closure to something that felt like it had totally fallen apart. It gives a finality to what is otherwise a movie that just ends. Well, I agree with you on that point, but I didn't even notice it wasn't being used throughout the movie because it really didn't feel like a Halloween movie to me it's mm. that much. So, uh, one wonders if they had used it more whether it would feel like a Halloween movie. Perhaps. Uh, I don't know, but it definitely, like many things from the Carpenter version, it was uh, it was missed. I can only imagine that Zombie's artistic choice was to hold it back until the end and remind people what they've been watching, but that he wanted to make his own uh, remake of uh, Laura Palmer's tragic moments from Twin Peaks. Because if there's a point of view at all, it's about a young girl who is coaxed into going crazy by crazy visions and uh, weirdness that never gets explained. So, Arnie, Stuart, do you recommend Halloween 2? Stuart? Under no circumstances. <laughs> um, even if you enjoyed the, the first Rob Zombie movie, you're better off 
enjoying it and leaving that there. I, I have to believe, Arnie, you're terribly disappointed in Zombie. This is the worst thing he's ever put out. He, I don't think he liked it. I know the audience didn't like it. I don't think the box office speaks to people in mass liking it. I would think that if the Akkads weren't in charge of this, they would let this one go. And I'm really curious to know where they think they can take it after such a derailment. Arnie. God, I wanted to like this movie. If for no other reason than I'm really tired of having these podcast series end on such a down <laughs> note. I mean, it's it's a fucking pisser. Because Can I just say that I don't think I've ever in this series come out saying that the film at the end of the chain was good. And it's not my intention to shit on the, on the show at the end. And that's not like my performance art of like, hey, I just want to say this sucks. I really wanted to like it too, but I don't know what it is. We're just picking the wrong things. You know, hell, if we had done Batman last year, I would be jumping up and down, but we yeah. didn't. Well, well, Star Trek, Arnie and I like Star Trek. Yeah, but It was okay. I was disappointed, but God, in retro- compared to the other things, it was genius. I want to reca- retract my review of Star Trek and say, Best concluding podcast movie of all time because, uh, yeah, these other ones just end on such a sour note. Totally. And, you know, I'm watching this movie and I want to like it not just for the series, but because I'm a fan of zombies, his music and his movies. And I went into this movie hyped and, you know, I actually didn't go into this movie hyped. I went into this movie with mediocre expectations because I knew it was made on the cheap and I knew that there were compromises and word of mouth hadn't been good. But I went in with mediocre expectations, hoping, you know, if not for a home run than perhaps for a good double. I was so bored. And that's the worst thing I can say about a movie. I would much rather have a movie that's just atrocious but entertaining than a movie that's atrocious and boring. Yeah. And I I feel like zombie shit on Halloween with this one. I feel like what was done to the character of Loomis is almost unforgivable. It's just such a departure from the character I loved in the first movie. And the performance that McDowell gave in the first movie was so tremendous. And here it's, it's so not the same. And the whole thing is just nonsense. It's it's a bad movie, folks, and I'm sorry, but there's no way I can recommend anybody see this. Just see the first one and remember it for the good movie it is, and I'm left wondering where Rob Zombie goes from here. And I'm in agreement with both of you. I don't recommend this movie either, and I, why repeat it? We, I said it already on the podcast, and you guys have summed it up perfectly, so yes, that's all three of us do not recommend Halloween 2. So I want to thank you for listening to all of our Halloween retrospective series episodes thank you so much for taking this journey with us if you enjoy what you heard please go to our website at www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download our other retrospective series our terminator star trek friday the 13th and rob zombie mini retrospective series they're all there if you enjoyed it please send us an email and let us know what you liked please post in our forums a link to our forums can be found on our homepage. and leave us a review if you like us on itunes so other people can find us and enjoy us as well and i'd like to add that now playing will return next week as we begin another retrospective series saw six just opened in theaters and we will be looking back at all movies in the saw franchise so come back to now playingpodcast.com next week or subscribe in iTunes to start that journey with us and hopefully it ends better than this one. All right, guys. Until next time. (laughs) Three more years to Halloween. Halloween. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was... Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. It's all over, my friend. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to our other installments, as well as our Friday the 13th, House of a Thousand Corpses, Terminator, and Star Trek Retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production and is not affiliated with Compass International, Universal Pictures, Galaxy International Pictures, Dimension Films, Miramax Films, or The Weinstein Company. Michael Myers and all other Halloween characters and situations are copyright and trademarks of those companies, and no infringement is intended. 
I didn't realize Karate Kid 2 popularized that idea. Yes, yes it did. <laughs> what hellable reference, Arnie? Way to go. <laughs> I think it's brilliant. I was, I was sitting here laughing. It's just brilliant. Go ahead. And clearly, I need to go back to Karate Kid 2. I don't remember this. It's, but it's right. absolutely perfect, Stuart. It's perfect. <laughs> the only, only thing is wrong with it, it wasn't a dream. It's just, he's yeah, right. Yeah, it's right. He's so, right, right, though. So, uh, 